0: Every few years, once its warehouses of unclaimed, lost, and found items fill up, Mishteret Israel, the Israel Police, becomes Sotheby's for a day.
1: Okay, so we're here.
0: Back in late November, our producer Adina Karpuch, went to the Beddagan Police Station near Rishon LeZion to attend an unusual auction. <laughs> So, Adina, what kind of items were being auctioned off there?
1: So there were really all kinds of things. You know, lots of things that you would expect for people to have lost, like phones, headphones, um, bicycles, Uh, you know, there was a strimal, a bunch of strollers, but there were also really surprising things. There was an industrial oven, a refrigerator, um, remote controls for handling cranes and drones, you know, really surprising things that I don't know how someone would lose that kind of stuff.
0: (laughs) And who shows up to something like this?
1: So I was really surprised about the kinds of people that come because really it spans the entire spectrum, as long as you're male. So there were about 150 men there. Um, Me and the auctioneer, and maybe a handful of cops were women. But other than that, you had Kharedim, Arabs, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, Uh, Techies, bikers, and there was this one guy, Dan. Uh, Hi, can I talk to you for a second?
2: Yeah, of course. What's your name? Dan.
1: Hi, Dan. Um, Nice to meet you. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit why you're here today?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm here to buy an accordion.
1: An accordion, wow. Are you an accordion player?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm trying to be.
1: You're trying to be, so you're just learning now? Yep. And how have you been practicing until now?
2: Uh, On the internet, just learning stuff.
1: So you have an accordion at home? Yep. But you want another one?
2: Yes, and this one looks very, very good. And I hope it will be in in, in a good price.
1: How much are you willing to put up for it?
2: I think... 200, top.
1: Okay, good luck, Dan. Thank you. Hope to see you on YouTube one day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And did he end up getting the accordion?
1: So I actually found him at the end of the auction. Dan, what ended up happening with the accordion? Did he get it?
2: No, it was too high. They started at 600.
1: 600! And you were, go- you were coming here for 250. 250
2: tops! And in the end, it, it has been sold for 1,000 checkers. 1,000 shekels? 1,000 shekels. Okay, so no accordion for me. And hopefully I will get an accordion somewhere else. Maybe I will start my career as an accordionist YouTuber.
3: Later
0: eh? <laughs> So going once, going twice, sold. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Israel's Story is brought to you by Tablet Magazine and the Jerusalem Foundation. As you can probably hear in my voice, I'm a bit sick. But don't worry, it's thankfully not COVID, just the flu. Anyway, this is our last episode of the season, and it's been quite the journey. We began season six with our day at the Y, and have since explored all kinds of unusual and hidden corners of Israeli society. We've delved into the worlds of Israeli pork and kosher Korean kimchi. We've excavated a 2,000-year-old mikveh in Hanaton and nearly touched the surface of the moon with a blue and white rover we visited Shirley the turkey on the Freedom Farm in Olesh, Amir and his chicken coops in um Fahim, and searched for wild boars in Haifa. we followed a season of women's volleyball in Nazareth, and the unlikely process of regrowing a foreskin. We've recorded at Shatna's labs in Bnebrak and date farms outside of Jericho, and in our most recent episode, we told the heartbreaking tale of the 2001 suicide bombing at Sbarro. We're now heading into many months of production, during which we'll research, record, and produce stories for our next season, season 7. But as our way of saying goodbye to this season, our episode today is called Going Going Gone, and is devoted entirely to things that are ending, going out of business or style, or coming to a close. All right, let's begin. Life, of course, is a series of things ending and other things beginning. That's the premise of every single bat mitzvah speech, every country music song, every Netflix rom-com. And we humans have decided to mark some of those changes in a formal way, with rites of passage. No matter who we are, where we live, or what religion we practice, there are events, ceremonies, and rituals that accompany us from birth to death. And in some cases, beyond. Many of these rites of passage are a source of much joy and anticipation. But some, like the one we're going to hear about now, elicit, well, more ambivalent feelings. Here's Tanya Huird with Act One, Baby
4: Steps.
5: My name is Belly. Um, free.
4: I met Eliana, or Belly, when I spent Shabbat with her family in Jerusalem a few months ago. On her way to bed that evening, Belly popped her pacifier, or Nunu as she calls it, into her mouth as she bid me goodnight. It seemed to me that she was nowhere near ready to give it up. So I was surprised when, a few weeks later, her mom Liron invited me to join them for a trip to the neighborhood Motsets or pacifier tree. Now, if you have kids or cousins or grandkids of the right age, you're probably familiar with the concept. Pacifier trees originated in the eighties in the small village of Flüda near Gothenburg in Sweden. Ula Jerling, the kindergarten teacher who came up with the idea, thought it would be a sensitive and respectful way to help toddlers part with their pacifiers and, at the same time, strengthen their connection to nature. I mean, if you hang your pacifier on a tree, it's never really gone. You can still go visit, say hi, and see how it's doing. Pacifier, or dummy trees, quickly took off and spread across the world. And, like everything else, I guess also made Aliyah in 2011. Today, Atzei as the blue and white version is called, grow in cities from Nahariya to Eilat, from Beit Shean to Ashkelon. In all those, and at least 17 other municipalities, children, often accompanied by their parents and grandparents, come with pacifiers clenched tightly in their fists to say goodbye to a dear friend in a way that's more meaningful than just throwing it away or stuffing it in a random drawer. Sensing a radio piece in the making, I immediately told Yaron that I'd be delighted to tag along. She warned me that it might not be as triumphant as I was imagining. See, she had already been through this ritual once before, with Belly's older brother, Danielle.
6: I am five.
4: I am Danielle. And given how things had gone with him, she wasn't sure Belly was actually ready to part with her Nunu. So this was pitched as more of a dry run than the real thing. We'd all go, look at the Nunu tree, get a sense of where the Nunu would one day hang, and then come back home. When I showed up for this dress rehearsal, Belly proudly showed me her two Nunu's. Look at it. Judging by its wear and tear, it was clear which one was the favorite Nunu. The one with the yellow and black ducks. Yellow and black ducks. And pink. And lest we forget, pink. As this excursion was really only meant to be a make-believe exercise, Belly caught us all off guard when she looked up and asked. Can I put my mozzets
5: on my nursery?" tree?
4: You want to put your mozzets on the mozzets tree? Yes. You do? Yeah. Right now, today. Right now, today. This girl sure knew what she wanted. What do we do at
1: the mozzets tree?
5: Um, we're big kids. Um, not have any more sets.
1: Not have any more sets afterwards?
4: And <laughs> be a big
5: kid! <laughs>
4: As she squealed that, and then be a big kid! She looked up at her brother Danielle, who had much to say about the difference between a baby and a big kid. Like himself. The thing is, a baby doesn't know anything,
5: and a big kid knows more. For instance, I know that cactuses don't grow when there's rain.
4: And I know that metal is strong. But when he was just a little kid, I said metal was nothing. With those important tidbits all sorted out and armed with puffy coats, warm mittens, and colorful rain boots, we were ready to set out into the Jerusalem winter and commence our farewell to Nunu adventure.
5: <laughs> to the Nunu Tree!
4: To the Nunu Tree! A short bus ride up the hill and a pell-mell tumble-bumble down the other side, we arrived at the Gonanim Mozetz Tree in all its germy glory. <laughs> Hundreds of nunus were dangling from the gnarled branches of the elm tree, shimmering in the golden glow of the streetlights. To me, at least, they looked like little votive offerings to the spirit of infanthood. Whoa, that is a lot. Mesmerized by the sight of the fantastic tree, Belly and Danielle began dashing from one nunu-laden branch to the next. Then Belly got down to business. This one. She carefully chose a branch and, with Leron's help, added her Nunu to a long chain of other, older Nunu's.
6: Belle, you want to give it a kiss goodbye?
4: Bye-bye. Do you love your Nunu? Yeah. A content smile instantly appeared on Belly's face. So happy now. In fact, she was apparently so excited by the prospect of leaving her babyhood behind that she decided that sending just one Nunu into retirement simply wasn't enough. She pulled out the other Nunu from her pocket.
5: And I want to put
4: it next to here.
5: We're just going to put
4: one. We're just going to put one, Liron said. Because as thrilled as Belly was, her mom knew the night was still young.
1: <laughs> Are we going to sleep with the Nunu or no is it going
5: to be hard or easy? Easy peasy lemon creasy.
4: <laughs> Wanting to be supportive, but having experienced the legendary Nunu withdrawal of her older child, Belly's mom pressed on. What are you
1: going to do to make yourself feel better? What do you
4: think, a hug? A cuddle with your bear? What else? A nana. A Nunu, Belly answered. Thank God at least one Nunu would be making the journey home.
5: Bye-bye, Nunu sweet.
4: We walked back to the bus stop where, just an hour earlier, Belly had been a little kid with two Nunu's. Deep in conversation with Danielle about life cycles and milestones, I made a rookie mistake and momentarily lost track of my protagonist, nearly missing radio gold. I turned just as her mom called out. Hey! What was in her mouth? I rushed back to Belly, who was dawdling behind us. Belly, what's in your mouth? No, no. Why is the no-no in your mouth?
5: Because.
4: Because why? Because it's night time. One pacifier away from being a full-fledged big kid, she popped her last remaining nuno back into her mouth, indicating that she was done talking. With this final tether to her. Little kid status still in place, she held my hand tightly as we crossed the street together. Baby steps.
0: Tanya Huyard. And now, from an end I imagine most of us went through, my mom says I was unwilling to part with my choo choo till I was almost four, to an end I very much hope no one listening has had to experience. On August 15th, 2021, we were all at the Israel Story office, making last-minute edits to our day at the Y season opener. Suddenly, we noticed a massive cloud of smoke appear outside the window. And that cloud of smoke it didn't really disappear for several days.
6: So,
3: here in Ramat Raziel, with us
6: yesterday, this
3: entire
0: village was evacuated as the fire This was one of the most catastrophic and extensive wildfires in Israel's recent history. It consumed thousands of acres of trees and brush, and about 2,000 people had to be evacuated from their homes. Ultimately, it took more than 200 teams of firefighters, together with planes, helicopters, IDF and police forces, and help from the Palestinian Authority to put out the flames. But, of course, that's when local residents, people like Micha and Shoshana Harari, realized all that was gone. Here's Ellie Blyer with Act Two Fire and Ice.
7: When it starts snowing in Colorado, it can go on for a week.
8: In the winter of 1979, Shoshana and Micha Harari found themselves up against the grand force of nature.
7: We were out in the mountains in this little tiny wooden cabin with a dirt floor.
8: To be honest, this kind of adventure was nothing new for the Hararis, a secular Jewish couple from the East Coast. They were, how should I put it, a bit out there, a bit less conventional. Shoshana was teaching herself to be a naturopathic healer, and Micha was a self-taught instrument maker.
7: We were living very primitively, 25 miles outside of any civilization, completely and totally alone. It was wonderful. You wake up in the morning, the air is clean, you see the eagles flying and bears are walking by, and you're like, oh, wow, I'm in nature.
8: But this snowstorm, this was different and it set their lives on an entirely new path.
7: The first day, it was really fun. I mean, we were like, oh, this is like a movie We're snowed in, because we really were. Fortunately, we had brought in some wood the night before, and I could push the one window open enough to get snow so we could melt it and have water. So we weren't gonna die. The second day, it was still fun, but not as much. (laughs) The third day, it was very little fun, and by the fourth day, we had cabin fever and we wanted to get out of there.
8: Since they couldn't go anywhere, they passed the time reading.
7: We had a few books that we had read already, so there was nothing else really to do. And the last book that we never read was the
8: Tanakh. That is the Hebrew Bible.
7: I carried it around. I don't even know why I carried it around. I never opened it. Even the pages were stuck together. But on this particular day, this momentous day,
3: Listen, you all. It was the
7: only thing we had not we're done. I'm gonna
3: tell you the most important thing that you ever heard in your life. You never heard that before.
7: So we opened the book.
3: Read the book, the only book, the book of God.
8: In the beginning.
3: And you're gonna know the truth.
8: At first, Shoshana and Micha weren't sure if they'd actually found God or if it was just a blizzard-induced trip. But as the snow melted away, it became clear to them that their newfound faith was just starting to heat up. They were drifters, sure, but they began contemplating a major change, even for them. Maybe, they thought, they should move to a magical land, a land of milk and honey.
7: We said, oh, you know what? We'll just get a donkey and a cart and we'll travel around Israel till the Mashiach comes. And that was our plan. There
8: was only one small problem with this romantic idea.
7: We knew nothing about Israel except what was written in this book. We were all alone and there was nobody, not a rabbi, not a leader, not even my mother (laughs) was there to say, that is not a smart idea.
8: With a few stops along the way, they were committed vagabonds after all, they ultimately traded the Rockies' wilderness for the Middle Eastern sun. But they quickly discovered that things weren't quite as they had read in the good book.
7: We were in complete culture shock. We didn't speak Hebrew, we didn't know what anybody's saying. Everything looked very strange, we had no idea.
8: Instead of tents and camels, they encountered highways and towers. A far cry from the tales of Genesis.
7: Avraham, Sarah, like, hey, there are relatives, and they are so cool. They're wandering and wandering around, living very primitively, like we were. It wasn't like we were stupid or something, but we really didn't think that this book was written a long time ago.
8: <laughs> but as they'd already traveled halfway around the world, they decided to give the country a shot.
7: So we don't go see things as, like, tourists we go somewhere, we live there.
8: They eventually settled down in Tiberias and breathed life into their biblical fantasy through Micha's work.
7: So we came across an archaeological book that had a drawing called the Megiddo Harpist, and the archaeologists date it to be 3,000 years old.
8: Micha had always promised to build Shoshana a harp, and immediately said, Yeah,
7: that's the harp we should make. A harp from Israel, a harp from our past, a harp from the time of King David. By the rivers of Babylon. Babylon. Babylon.
8: (laughs) There's a famous So the couple decided to make that harp, and then another, and another, and another.
7: The first 20, they were not good instruments.
8: But with time, they improved. And before long, they became expert handmade harp makers, carefully crafting these ancient instruments in a modern land.
7: The sweetest sound in the world is the harp. It's so pure and so beautiful, it opens doors, opens gates of heaven, it opens your heart. How did God even create this world? It says that he sang it into existence with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The harp, it has 22 strings, and the 22 strings correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's a kind of mystical idea that this world is a world of frequency and the sounds that we produce are very important because some sounds make us sick and some sounds make us well. And the harp has always been known as an instrument of music therapy. Like you can read it in the Bible. David was brought in to play for Saul and Saul felt better and the evil spirit left Saul. That's very powerful. The harp really touches
8: us. The Hararis ended up building a home and a harp workshop in Ramat Raziel, a small moshav in the forested hills of Jerusalem. And it was there, in that workshop, that wood and string were transformed into angelic instruments, ornate, exquisite, and much-desired pieces of art. In fact, for the last 40 years or so, the Hararis harps have become world famous and are shipped across the globe. Life, ultimately, was good to them. They were living peacefully, surrounded by trees, making harps and waiting for the Mashiach to arrive. Until, that is, the afternoon of August 15th, 2021. More than four decades after that life-changing Colorado snowstorm, their lives were upended once again, this time by an opposite force of nature.
7: We looked out the window and the sky was black and there was a sound like a roaring ocean. And I'm like, hmm, that is a fire.
8: Micha ran out to the workshop, but
7: it was way too late. He couldn't even get near it. The wind was blowing in our direction. He said, we have to leave immediately. And we just left with our clothes on our back. In something like that, you can't think. You just have to act. I got to just go because I'm going to die if I don't.
8: It would take another five days till the flames were finally quelled. All in all, more than 14,000 dunums of forest had turned to ash. Ramat Raziel and several other nearby communities were evacuated, and locals didn't know what remained of their homes. Micha and Shoshana feared the worst.
7: The next morning, we got a phone call from one of our neighbors, and they said, your house is fine. It's like, no, no, you must be talking about somebody else's house. It's not possible that our house is fine. It was 20 meters high, flames blowing in that direction, about three or four meters from our wooden front door. How in the world could our house still stand?
8: But when they finally returned, it was a miracle.
7: I mean, honestly, there's no other word for it because the house is wood. How could it not burn? But something stopped it and nobody knows what that is. The only explanation is it's the creator of the universe.
8: The harp workshop, on the other hand, was a
7: catastrophe, a complete and total catastrophe. Every single thing that was in there was gone. What can you say in the face of that, you know, you just look at it, it's like a power that you can't really understand. There wasn't like we could rebuild from what we had. It's like, no, we have to start again from nothing. We were in shock. I mean, really. It comes to me like sometimes when I lay in bed at night before I go to sleep, and you can't process it for a while. There is a moment of hurt, like really deep hurt, and really when you see it, you see that a great, great tragedy happened here.
8: The Harps were gone. 40 years worth of work. But somehow Shoshana manages to maintain her optimism and also her faith.
7: Yes, it was a catastrophe, but what I really learned out of this is in order to have a new beginning, you really have to have a clear ending. Anyway, no matter what anyone wants to do, only God can do things like that. (laughs) And this was his harp shop. And if he wanted to burn it down, he certainly had the right to do
8: it. Shoshana and I spoke hours before Yom Kippur began, exactly one month after the blaze. She stressed the importance of it being a Shemitah year, a year of Jewish renewal, when the land is given time to rest, Now, she said, they too would have to rest and then they'll start all over again. As we said our goodbyes, she looked out the window at the now decimated forest.
7: The animals, they ran. And the birds, they flew. But the trees, they can't go anywhere. So they had to stand there while this inferno of fire was coming at them yet they could dig their roots down deep and hold on to some source of life so they could make it and begin again. And I feel that we're like that too, all of us. We went down there yesterday and we saw a little green shoot and maybe in a few years it'll be green again and, you know, it'll take time, maybe 30 years, but it'll come back.
8: It will come back. Amen.
7: Great. Well, may you be carried on the wings of angels. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Ellie Blyer. We'll be right back. And now, back to our episode. At the very end of Allenby Street in Tel Aviv, right before the city spills into the Mediterranean Sea, there's a little hole-in-the-wall store called Photodoron. It's a repair shop for film cameras, one of the last of its kind like a fossil of a different era. The owner sits behind a big and cluttered desk, and perhaps surprisingly, isn't called Doron. My name is Jacob, Jacob Barzilai, and I repair camera. Jacob, or Yaakov, has been fixing and selling analog cameras for more than half a century. He opened this shop, named for his son, in 1972. Obviously, technology has not made life easy for him. First, he was nearly driven out of business by the digital camera, and now, of course, by the smartphone. But despite the fact that his profession may be closer to appearing in history books than in newspaper headlines, 79-year-old Yaakov isn't going
5: anywhere. I'm still here. Doesn't matter about the money. Don't think about the money. So why is that? And what is
0: it about Photodoron that gives it the power to stick around long after most of its competitors have shut their doors? Skylar Inman finds out in Act 3, Candid Camera.
9: Hi, Jacob? Hi, shalom. Hello, how are you? I'm okay. Photodoron is a tiny shop. Or at least, it feels that way. Wherever you look, there are floor-to-ceiling shelves packed with cords, lenses, tools, and of course, cameras. I walk in carefully, doing my best not to accidentally topple the precarious piles of tripods and camera cases. To me, it seems like an unbelievable mess. But to Yakov, everything is exactly where it should be.
5: I remember one day, my wife come here She clean and put everything, you know, then I can find nothing.
9: (laughs) Every morning at 10 a.m. sharp, Yaakov unlocks his shop and takes his place at a large wooden desk right in the middle of the store. On the wall behind him, there's a tangle of antique cameras. He pulls one of them down and shows it to me. Uh,
5: 1903. This camera? This camera. This camera.
9: Was made in 1903.
5: It's work. Unbelievable.
9: Entering Doron is like traveling back in time, not only because of what Yaakov sells, but also because of who he is and how he runs his business. In our glossy, branded, social media-savvy world, a shop like this feels like an endangered species. Yaakov has no fancy website, no credit card machine, and other than a tall stack of business cards, no apparent advertising. He hardly even has a sign outside the door. In fact, as we sit and talk, people continuously pop their heads into the store out of pure disbelief. It's like they're saying, this is still here? A film camera shop? What is this,
5: 1983?
9: Shalom. Hello. Hello. How are you? Ah, Okay. I like very much that you are still here. Thank you, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) The pleasantly surprised customer is Sasha Baradulin an old-school Russian photographer with an eclectic
5: portfolio. Um, I am very diverse. I take pictures from the war to playboy. So,
9: <laughs> Yakov is clearly excited to see Sasha.
5: Talking about three or four years, I didn't see him. Wow. We know each
9: other for like
5: 20 years.
9: You know each other for 20 years? Yeah. That's loyalty. From one We're point of
5: view, it's loyalty. From another point of view, he is the only one who is left.
9: The only one who is left. Now, you might expect there to be something melancholy about a guy like Yaakov, working all alone in a shop, trying to sell something almost no one wants to buy. But Yaakov is happy, content, and surprisingly busy. In fact, just as his old pal Sasha leaves, another customer walks in. Hi, shalom, came, pakasha.
5: Okay. Okay. The
9: guy's looking for a cable for a specific Sony video camera. I think to myself, a digital camcorder. Yaakov isn't going to have that. He's a film guy. But Yaakov's face lights up. He's got it, he says, and reaches deep into one of the boxes right next to him. It's an original, he tells the guy. One hundred and fifty shekels, cash only. The customer and I are both stunned and impressed by what just happened. He grins, hands Yaakov the cash, and waves goodbye. Bye to Baba. Yaakov watches him leave, and as soon as he's out of earshot, turns to me and says, See, I bought it for five shekels.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I sold for 150. Three of those buy in day.
9: That's enough. Go home. That is more or less Yaakov's business model. Accumulate stuff no one wants anymore, and then sell it, hopefully at a substantial markup, to a random person looking for something super specific. Most of the day, he just sits at his desk and waits, tinkering on this or that old camera until a customer comes in.
5: Uh, change a little things here, there, put a new battery, that's it, three minutes, I swear.
9: But even though he makes it sound easy, Yaakov really is good at fixing things. And by things, I don't just mean cameras. Often, he tells me, clients come in with bigger problems than a broken shutter or a scratched lens. Problem with the parents. Problem
5: with the wife. I'm good with how to to manage things.
9: Yaakov pauses for a second and seems to mull over his own statement.
5: Like a rabbi.
9: (laughs) I love love Yaakov. (laughs) This clearly cracks him up. He's an atheist, and a proud one, I gather, since he brings it up a bunch of times. I'm not religious, I don't care about that. Yaakov and his family fled Iraq in 1951. They were part of a massive exodus of Iraqi Jews, fleeing waves of anti-Semitic violence and intimidation following the creation of the state of Israel. So if you ask Yaakov, all religion seems to do is cause problems, divisions, and violence. Things he's got no time for. The family settled in Beersheva. And when Yaakov was 18, he was drafted into a special aircraft engineering unit, where, in his words, he learned everything he needed to know about machines.
5: Uh, Hydraulica,
9: electronica, everything. It was actually there in the army that Yaakov got his first camera. Well, sort of. See, it wasn't his per se, and technically it wasn't just a camera. It was a special
5: uh, aircraft with a camera. For a spy.
9: When Yakov finished his military service and was done servicing spy planes, he knew he wanted to be his own boss. He also knew that cameras were all the rage. Looking around Tel Aviv's beaches, parks, and cafes, all he saw were people snapping pictures. Selling cameras would be a piece of cake, he thought. And when they'd inevitably break, he'd be able to fix them. He was, after all, a master repairman. So, Yaakov saw an opportunity and took it. He opened up his first Photoshop. Evening Viral 1. And his
5: second. Ben Yehuda 84. And his third. Yehuda Halevi 51.
9: Before long, he had a little photo empire.
5: Uh, Is this one? I have one in Petr Tikva.
9: And of course, this location Allenby 16. Today, it's the only one of his six stores that's still in business. And that's part of why he has so much stuff in here, he tells me. Photo de Rhone is the last of the last, a living museum of sorts. As we sit and chat, the trickle of customers slows down. And for a while, it's just me and Yaakov, alone in this world he's inhabited every day for decades. And I find myself oddly comforted by the unpretentiousness of the clutter by the warm, cocoon-like feel of the tiny space. And most of all, just by knowing that a place like this exists. It's not just my tendency towards the nostalgic or my love of old cameras. It's something more than that. To me, Yakov and Fotoduron represent an alternative, something different than our modern, high-speed, use-it-abuse-it-chuck-it-out-and-move-on society. At Fotoduron, Time moves slowly. Old things are cherished and lovingly brought back to life. And efficiency, let alone showmanship, is not held in high regard. It's the last night of Hanukkah, and it's getting close to closing time. As Yaakov gathers his stuff and gets ready to lock up, a gaggle of wide-eyed middle-schoolers walks by. Shalom. They're on okay. school break, wandering around Tel Aviv. As they look around, it's pretty clear they have no idea what the store is for. They just know it looks cool. It's an old fashioned photography store, Yakov explains. You sell cameras? They ask him. Yes, old cameras from way before you were born. I promise you that. And I fixed them. Want to see what they look like inside? Can I take a picture of this? One of the The kids asks as she instinctively whips out her iPhone. On one of the only patches of wall that isn't completely covered with stuff, there's a framed photograph of Yaakov as a young businessman. In it, he's wearing a skinny tie. His hair is thick, dark, and curly. He's grinning and proudly holding up a card that says, "Hertz business class. One of the kids notices it. Is Is that you? He asks with disbelief. Look at you, you're so handsome. One of the boys chimes in flatteringly. (laughs) Another of the kids asks if he could teach her about photography. Yaakov, who is about to close shop for the day, tells her to come back any other day, four to six in the afternoon. Okay. He'll be here. Okay. For a man of his age, Yaakov seems to feel like he's got plenty of time. How much longer do you
5: expect to be working here? In my ambition, all the time.
9: Really? No, no retirement for you?
5: No. I'm next month, 80. I was in the hospital, you know, sometimes I don't feel good, but it is something mechanic in in the body. I don't have a big illness, no. I feel very young.
9: Besides, he says, as he steps out the door, he's still got a lot of stuff left to sell. A lot of cameras to repair. And until the doctors can no longer fix whatever mechanical problems his body might have, he intends to be right here, tinkering away at his desk.
0: Skylar Inman. In the category of things that are going, going, and gone, this is, sadly, Skylar's final piece with us as an Israel Story producer. She's off to conquer the world of academia, and conquer she will. See, in the two years she's been part of our team, I've come to believe that there's nothing, literally nothing, that Skylar can't do. She's unbelievably smart and talented and kind, and has been a true leader here at Israel Story. So, Skylar, know that your Israel Story family is always waiting for you with open arms, that we love you very, very much, and that we'll miss you terribly. Okay, we've arrived at our very last act of the season. Act four, Till Death Do Us Part. Now, many people say those words, and mean them, at least at the time, but with divorce rates being what they are, that phrase, till death do us part, seems more like wishful thinking than an actual life plan. Nevertheless, in our final story, we'll hear about a couple who took this commitment very seriously. In fact, they took it so seriously that they refused to let
6: even death
0: Separate them. Here's Yoshi Fields.
6: That's her when she came to Israel. She's wearing this um, black scarf around her head and like a black dress. And she looks really young.
10: I'm in a small apartment in Jerusalem with 36-year-old Renana Adani. We're sitting in her living room and she's showing me pictures of her recently deceased grandparents on her phone. There's an old photo of the two of them sitting together on an auburn couch, proudly holding a chubby little baby renana in their arms. In another, her grandfather Shlomo is blessing his wife, Sara, his outstretched hands placed gently on her head. A scarf covers Sara's hair, and she has a mischievous twinkle in her eyes. Shlomo, on the other hand, is wearing the exact same thing in every single shot. He looks like a rabbi with a, a nice suit. Yeah,
6: yeah, always, called Simonim. The Yemenite called him Simonim, Mm. like the long peot.
10: Her grandparents were always a huge presence in her life, the two pillars of the large Adani family.
6: We have a WhatsApp group of our cousins, and he's like the picture of our group, like Saba's watching.
10: Renana always looked up to them and saw their relationship as a model of sorts. I mean, after all, Sara and Shlomo were married for longer than most people are alive.
6: 81 years. Almost 82.
10: 81 years.
6: They had this thing of togetherness, of like their relationship is made out of two people, but it's really one thing.
10: Like many grandparents, especially those from a traditional background, Shlomo and Sara wanted more than anything to see their granddaughter get married. It was no secret. In fact, it was the main topic of conversation whenever they talk.
6: Remember him always asking me machadash, which is like what's new. So I said uh, at work, I'm this, I'm that, my my friends, my I don't know. He said no, 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 machadash, like no, 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 what's really new? Like he meant my like my love life.
10: But despite her grandparents' desires and her own, by the way, Renana had nothing to report. She hadn't found her mate.
6: I feel like the choice makes me look for something very specific. And yet, I can't find that right now.
10: Sabah Shlomo and Saftasara simply couldn't understand
6: why. They never had that choice, and then I don't think they even wanted that choice.
10: They were from a different generation, a different time, and a different mentality. Their marriage predated color TV, atomic energy, the credit card, and superglue. Not to mention, of course, the state of Israel. They were both from Dala a small village in southern Yemen, and had practically grown up in the same house. Back in the 1930s, Sara's father had semi-adopted Shlomo, who had lost both his parents when he was just a child. A few years later, when Shlomo and Sara were old enough to get married, he matched them. They had essentially been siblings, and then, all of a sudden, they were husband and wife. Whenever a nana asked them about this, they brushed it off with a smile.
6: You couldn't talk about these things. It was like... He was the best man for her. She was the best woman for him. These things were, like, straightforward. We got married. That's it.
10: They were, Renana says, like a Yemenite version of Tevye and Golda from Fiddler on the Roof. Do
3: you love me? I'm your wife. I know.
5: But do you love me?
6: Do I love him? Well love wasn't part of their vocabulary. I never heard them say the, world lo- the word love. I never talked to them about love. I feel like I don't even know if they know what it means.
5: Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no,
6: Gold, I'm asking you a question. I never saw them like looking into each other's eyes or something like that, or saying anything like soft but all the things that they did for each other was like love for them.
9: And you love me. I suppose I do. Uh,
5: And I suppose I love you too.
10: They immigrated to Israel in the early years of the state and raised a family, two sons and three daughters, in Rosh Ha'ayin. Shlomo opened up a clothing shop and Sara ran the house. But no matter what they did, they did it together.
6: They didn't even know themselves without each other. One unit.
10: Still, as Renana recalls, they were complete opposites. Sabah Shlomo was a man of few words.
6: Stop talking, let's learn. That's it. Always serious with like a small, you know, small smile.
10: Safta Sara, on the other hand,
6: She loved to talk. She loved to t- tell stories and she was very dramatic about everything and had all the details. Growing up, Renana
10: would curl up in a chair in their living room and listen to her grandmother for hours and hours. It was, she says, like a one-woman Broadway production.
6: Singing songs and crying during the story and laughing and making jokes. And while Sara didn't know how to read or write... She really couldn't read a clock. Saba
10: Shlomo was considered a very learned man and always had his nose in a Bible or a Gemara.
6: People referred him as Rabbi Shlomo.
10: Yet in recent years, Renana watched as her grandparents' bond seemed to outlast memory itself. In 2007, Sara was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And with time, she no longer recognized Renana and her other grandkids. Four years ago, she stopped talking altogether. But even from behind this growing veil of fog, she always seemed happiest and most at ease when she was beside her husband. Shlomo's health was declining too.
6: Just like being in the same room or knowing that the other one is fine, is doing all right. So these kind of things are like, they show me like the very, very strong connection that they had.
10: As Sarah continued to deteriorate, the family wondered and worried how Shlomo would cope once she inevitably passed away.
6: Every time she went to the hospital, we were like, thought it's the end. Like, it might be the end. Should be We were like really tensed about it. And she always came back. My grandfather got like really excited and about it and everything.
10: Then Shlomo got cancer, and things moved pretty fast.
6: In the past few months, it was clear it was the end.
10: In the hours before he died, Renana and all of his children and 26 grandchildren came to see him. They sang prayers and said their goodbyes. Do you remember what you said to him when you were saying goodbye?
6: Um, so, I didn't say it out loud, but I said it to my sister's ear because I really wanted to say it, but I, I, I wasn't willing to share it with everyone. But uh, I said that I apologize that he never had a chance to be at my wedding to know my children. And it is very hard for me because he was like, I knew he really wanted that for me. I felt like sorry for myself and wanted also to apologize to him.
10: A few minutes later, Shlomo died. He was 101.
6: There's something about it being so final that is like, you can't change the situation. That's what it is. And that's what it's ever gonna be.
10: The entire family was gathered around him, everyone, that is, but Sarah, his wife. Given her dementia and fragile state, the family decided not to tell her that her companion of 80-plus years had died. But just a few hours later, as if she knew something was wrong, Sarah started having trouble breathing. As a precaution, they called an ambulance that took her to the hospital.
6: She was fine. It was like another exacerbation. And you were like, oh, we know that thing. So my aunt, which is a nurse, told me, like, go visit her. I, I don't trust anyone. Like, I want you to look at the numbers and see how she's doing. So I came there and I was like, she's doing better. She's started to eat. She's on the right track. And then I was there for two hours. And then suddenly she started deteriorating. And in five minutes, she passed away.
10: Sarah was 99 when she died.
6: The idea that none of them stayed alone is very strong. I think maybe maybe in a way she she felt she felt that. It's some way that I, I can't explain.
10: Together they had lived two centuries and together they exited this world forever. Tethered.
0: Yoshi Fields. With this story, we are also saying goodbye to Yoshi. Yoshi joined our team as an intern three and a half years ago. His first story, about a Cellcom TV ad that went terribly wrong, aired at the start of season four. And he has since told us unforgettable tales, from cleanup teams at the Kotel to regrown foreskins, from statues of laughter in space to Zionist pigs and many, many others. Yoshi is a first-rate writer and radio producer and is one of the most sensitive, committed, and conscientious people I know. We love you, Yoshi, and we'll miss you very, very much. Israel's story is, and will forever be, your home. And that's our episode... And our season. Zev Levi scored and sound designed this episode with music from Blue Dot Sessions, Shoshana Harari, and Tamara Tias. Sela Weisblum created the mix. Thanks to Tomir Nisim, Aviv Weiss, Udal Capon, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, Joy Levitt. A special thanks to Dina Rabhan. This is Israel Story's final episode with Tablet magazine. We'll be announcing our new home shortly, so stay tuned for that. But now is the time to say a heartfelt thank you to Tablet, who have been our home since 2014. The folks at Tablet believed in Israel Story when it was just an idea in our heads. And together, not only have we produced six full seasons, but we have also grown from nothing to the most-listened-to Jewish podcast in the world. It has been an honor and a privilege to be part of the Tablet family and to have had such an incredible model of first-rate journalism. Thanks first and foremost to Morty Landown, Alana Newhouse, and Wayne Hoffman, who believed in us, encouraged us, and supported us from day one. Thanks also to Sarah Avery, Alyssa Goldstein, Gabe Sanders, Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and Josh Cross. To Esther Werdiger and Kurt Hoffman, who created the artwork for our episodes over the years. And finally, and above all, to my radio mentor, who taught me so much of what I know, Julie Subrin. As I said at the top of the show, We're heading into many months of production, and plan to be back in early 2023, with a brand new and significantly expanded season. Till then, we will periodically be releasing short pieces, stories, and specials on our subscribers-only feed. So if you haven't yet done so, I encourage you to sign up. It's also a great way to support the show. Just go to Israel's Story on Apple Podcasts and press subscribe. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel's Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel's Story. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel's Story, email us at sponsor at IsraelStory.org. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Skyler Inman, Adina Karpuch, Nomi Schneider, Ellie Blyer, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. Tanya Huyard and Matthew Littman are our wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from the Pogglomerate is our marketing director. Tanya and Matt are finishing up their internship with us. Both of you together and each of you separately, have been incredible additions to our team. You are unbelievably committed and talented, and we simply can't wait to hear all the wonderful radio you will surely go on to create. Lastly, after three years as our COO, we are also saying goodbye to Sharon Rappaport. Though you never heard her voice on the show, Sharon has been the dynamic engine behind the scenes at Israel Story. She turned a group of idealistic storytellers into a professional podcasting team and elevated our operation in every possible way. Toda Sharon, you are a class act, a wonderful and generous friend and colleague, and your impact will continue to be felt in every facet of the organization. As you can imagine from all these farewells, Israel's story is hiring. So go to our site, IsraelStory.org, and press on the Jobs heading. We have a couple of different postings up there, and there will be even more in the weeks and months to come. Okay. Amishi Harman, and we'll be back next season. So till then, shalom shalom, and yalla bye. <laughs>
3: e a kol aya pashut mifla a שומרי chomeri brinta sulla בלילה be leila shakhof was fata kiner trumpel do ragaki po per la vita nana kolo tadumi chiar che khat chneya ma nashina le in Ando ballando a salsa, legnoto e vitamina la lulalo eretzzo Tan bei forte a torto che il vicino vi cerca pa אבל חשבא כי לראות לא מצאתי שום a song of joy, a place where we can't hide. And a song of joy, a place where we can't אדרמן תמר, בחורות יפות, נכנסיים קצרים היה עליהם בשביל מה נקום בבוקר כי לנו, לנו, לנו ארץ זו כאן איפה שאתה רואה את הדשא היו פעם רק ידושים שפעם היה כאן חלום נהדר אבל כשבאתי לראות לא מצאתי שוב דבר יכול להיות שזה נגמר (imitation) I'm a white with snow on the ground. I'm dreaming of a Christmas tree, with I'm dreaming a white Christmas, with a white Christmas,